So today's Bible reading is from Esther chapter 9, verses 20 to 31. So Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, uh, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar. As this, as a time when the Jews got relief from the enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy in giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agatite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the purr, that is a lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back into his own head and that he and his sons would be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim, the word uh, from the word purr because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out amongst, among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with, the, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, um, Word, words of goodwill and assurance to establish these days of Purim at, at their designated time as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their, t- their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirming those re- these regulations about Purim and what it was and, and it was written down in these records. Um. It's always uh, good to come and meet with you and to share God's word with you. And thank you for the opportunity and the privilege of doing that. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us for your Son's sake. Amen. In 1985, my wife Kim and I travelled to Cyprus, my father's country of birth. We both travelled on our Australian passports. I was, after all, born and bred in Australia. We were going to stay with my cousin in the capital, Nicosia. When we were going through customs, the official noticed we had not put a hotel address on our immigration cards. And he asked where we were staying. 
My Greek was very poor when we arrived. But I told him we were staying with my cousin and that my father was Cypriot. He greeted me like a long lost son. He stamped our passports. Kim had the usual three-month time limit stamp, but mine had no time limit at all. I could stay as long as I wanted. When the official finished stamping our passports, he said something to me in Greek, which I did not understand, but nodded anyway. I thought no more of it as Kim and I ventured off to enjoy our Cyprus holiday. Now, fast forward to the day before we were to fly back to Australia. Kim and I were walking down the main street of Nicosia when I happened to see a Cypriot man who'd lived next door to my parents' place in Croydon Park in the early 1970s. I hadn't seen Angelo for about 10 years. Angelo and I greeted each other with great warmth and he insisted that we come to his house for dinner and meet his wife and family. So that evening we went to Angelo's house. When I told Angelo we were flying back to Australia the following day, he asked me whether I'd got an exemption certificate. I said, what exemption certificate? Angelo said that, As a Cypriot, I was eligible for national service and I needed an exemption certificate to prove I was not leaving the country to avoid national service. It was only then I understood what the customs official had been talking about. How was I going to leave Cyprus without an exemption certificate? We were due to fly out the next morning. Angelo then said to me, I'll ring my father. He works at the airport. A few phone calls later, Angelo said, my father knows the head of security at the airport. He's agreed to meet you tonight and you must bring your passport with you. So in the dark of night, Angelo drove Kim and me to a cafe that was filled with people drinking coffee and smoking. It looked like a scene out of the old movie Casablanca, if you've ever seen it. We met with the head of security and showed him our passports. He asked me lots of questions about Australia and satisfied himself that I was born in Australia and had lived there all my life. He said, leave it to me and assured us I would be allowed to leave. We lay awake all that night, praying that I'd be allowed to leave the country. The next morning at the airport, Kimmel was allowed to pass through customs to board the flight, but not me. I was taken to a room where I was detained. After a few minutes, a phone call came through from the head of security, and I was allowed to board the plane home. What a series of coincidences. It just happened to be the day before we were to fly back home. Among the thousands of people in Nicosia that day, 
We just happened to bump into a, a Cypriot man I knew from Australia but had not seen for years. He happened to invite me, or invite us, I should say, to his home for dinner. The subject of the exemption certificate to leave the country just happened to come up in our conversation. It just happened that my friend's dad worked at the airport. It just happened that his dad knew the head of security at the airport. It just happened that the head of security was available to meet us that night. It just happened that he was satisfied I was not avoiding national service and his phone call came through just before my flight home was due to take off. This was a series of coincidences of ordinary people just living life that had a good outcome for me and a good story to tell. But was it just good luck or fate? Was it just meant to be that I'd have a good outcome? Or was it rather the unseen hand of a good God who rules over all things? There was no miracle, but still God, my heavenly Father, was taking care of me. And here in the book of Esther, God is not mentioned, not once. But it is undeniable that the unseen hand of God, of a good God, is ruling over all things to save his people. God is not seen in Esther, but he's still present, taking care of his people. The book of Esther concerns the danger faced by Jews scattered outside of Israel, Israel after the Babylonian exile during the period of the Persian Median Empire and their deliverance from that danger through two Jews, Queen Esther, the wife of the Persian king Xerxes, and her cousin Mordecai. The threat to the very existence of the Jewish people was because the prime minister to King Xerxes, Haman the Agagite, burned with anger and hatred against one Jewish man named Mordecai for refusing to bow down to him. You can read that in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And I'd encourage you to have the book of Esther available through this sermon. Haman's hatred towards one Jew escalated to a law he issued in the king's name for the total destruction of all Jews within the Persian Empire. Chapter 3, verses 8 to 15. And Haman did that after casting the lot called the Purim for the best time to execute his plan. Chapter 3, verse 7. The thing is, too, that when this law, this decree was uh, pronounced, it could not be revoked or cancelled because that was how the Persian legal system worked. 
And let's be clear, Haman's law was nothing less than state-sanctioned genocide. Look at chapter 3, verse 13, where the decree authorised the destruction and annihilation of all Jews, young and old, men, women and children, and added to that the plunder of their goods. It was Haman's final solution to his problem. And to cap it off, at the end of chapter 5, after he had just attended a private banquet with the king and queen and was invited to attend a second private banquet with them the next day, Haman happily planned to ask the king the next day for Mordecai to be impaled on a 23-metre-high pole he had set up. Everything was coming together beautifully for Haman to be honoured and to realise the humiliating death of the hated Mordecai. For Haman, things couldn't have been better and tomorrow couldn't come quickly enough. But then everything went horribly wrong for Haman. And it all started with something that most people experience at some time in their life. A night where you just can't sleep. Can you identify with that? The night before Haman's eagerly anticipated big day out, King Xerxes couldn't sleep. We're told that in chapter 6, verse 1. And it's common for people who can't sleep to read a book. So that's what the king, King Xerxes, did. And he just happened to command that the history of his reign as king be read to him. And it just happened that Mordecai's act are providing information that saved the king's life several years earlier. You can read that in chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. That event was read to Xerxes. The king then just happened to ask whether Mordecai had been honoured and recognised in any way for his good citizenship. Had he been given an order of Persia medal, for example? The answer was no. So the king just happened to ask, who was then in the court? And it just happened that Haman had just entered the court with the intention of asking the king for the impalement of Mordecai. So the king asked Haman for his opinion about what to do for a man who wanted, who, whom the king wanted to honour. After yesterday's banquet, and in view of his invitation to dine again with the queen and the king himself later that day, Haman naturally thought he was the one to be honoured. So he advised the king what to do. Now, the king approved of Haman's advice and immediately implemented it. 
There was only one thing, though. To Haman's horror and humiliation, it just happened the king did not want to honour him, but his arch enemy, Mordecai. And to make matters worse, the king commanded Haman to proclaim the king's honouring of Mordecai as he led Mordecai on a horse throughout the streets of the city of Susa, the capital. But this humiliating turn of events was only the beginning of Haman's spectacular fall. It's quickly followed in chapter 7 when Haman attended the, her, uh, her banquet and Queen Esther exposed to, king, to the king Haman's plot to kill her and her fellow Jews because of the decree. Then while the king was out of the room and Haman took the opportunity to beg Esther for his life, Haman just happened to fall on Esther while she was reclining on her couch. Just when the king happened to re-enter the room, for all intents and purposes, it appeared to the king that Haman was brazenly attempting to molest the queen. This sealed Haman's death sentence. Instead of being elevated in honour by the king, he was executed in disgrace by being impaled on the 23 metres high pole that he had built for Mordecai. Haman the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, was dead. And the series of coincidences that led to his fall all started with the king's sleepless night. What we see happening from chapter 6 onwards is a reversal of fortunes. You might have heard of that before. In Hannah's prayer, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, we find this principle of God reversing fortunes. And this is what Hannah prayed in verses 6 to 8 of 1 Samuel 2. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honour. Haman was disgraced while Mordecai was raised to a place of honour. Haman not only failed to kill Mordecai, but was himself killed instead. And the very method he had devised for Mordecai's death was used for his own. Later in chapter 9, we read how Haman's ten sons were also killed and impaled. So Haman lost his family too. Haman lost all his wealth, and he was very wealthy. Earlier in chapter 5, verse 9, um, Haman, I think it's 3, verse 9, actually, had offered to contribute 10,000 talents of silver from his personal wealth 
to the royal treasury as an inducement for the king to issue the decree for the extermination of the Jews. A talent of silver weighed 33 kilograms. So you imagine 10,000 times 33 kilograms. We're talking a lot, a lot of money. But who did Haman ultimately lose his wealth to? Ultimately, it was his, to his chief enemy, Mordecai. Haman was removed from his high position of power and Mordecai was installed in his place. Mordecai's appointment to the second most powerful position in the Persian Empire reminds us of the elevation of Joseph, for example, to be the second most powerful person in Egypt, installed there to save his family. At the end of chapter 7, it seemed that with Haman's death, the threat to the Jews would have died with him. But we know from chapters 8 and 9 that that was not the case. There was still the decree authorising the genocide of the Jews that Persian law would not allow to be revoked. Yet the problem was resolved primarily through legislation. Mordecai enacted a law in the king's name authorising the Jews to protect themselves from their attackers and to plunder the property of their enemies. And we know the Jews triumphed over their attackers. In addition to the ten sons of Haman, the Jews killed 800 men in the citadel of Susa and 75,000 throughout the rest of the empire. So just pause for a moment and think about that. Even after Haman's execution, nevertheless, over over 75,000 men attacked the Jews, which shows that although Haman was the Jews' chief and most important enemy, a lot of other people also hated them. And we are wrong to imagine that evil flourishes simply because there is one important person who actively encourages it. Obviously, the hatred was much more widespread than either Esther or Mordecai could have known. The commentator, David Firth, wisely observed, it is never sufficient to identify a source of evil within society. Rather, the challenge is to challenge those seduced by it and so to break its charms through the gospel. Mordecai's law was not enough to stop the enemies of the Jews from attacking them. His law could not change their hearts because they were motivated either by hatred or by the riches they would gain from plundering the Jews' property or both. Their evil hearts led them to their evil actions. And this in turn resulted in their destruction. 
Clearly, Mordecai's laws empowered the Jews to protect themselves from their attackers, and they did that to great effect. But it was not just a combination of the law and their efforts that saved the Jews. Fear also contributed to their deliverance. In chapter 8, verse 17, we read, Many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. In chapter 9, verses 2 to 4, we also read, No one could stand against them, referring to the Jews, because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. Although God's name is never mentioned, Esther 8.17 and chapter 9, verses 2 to 4, suggests that the Persian officials and peoples of all the other nationalities in the empire recognised that there was some divine force acting on behalf of the Jews. That's why fear of the Jews and of Mordecai seized them. No one was able to stand against the Jews in Esther's day. Because God is the one who fights for his people. And so the reversal of fortunes in the book of Esther was complete. Haman lost everything. Life, family, wealth, position, power. On the other hand, Mordecai gained position, wealth and power and became even more prominent and powerful. And the Jews who were facing extinction triumphed over their enemies by destroying them. Their mourning had been turned into joy and celebration. And thereafter, an annual feast, the Feast of Purim that we read about, to remember and celebrate God's rescue of his people from the planned destruction by their enemies. This reversal of fortune in Esther points us forward to the ultimate reversal of fortunes for a fallen humanity, where the ultimate and expected end is death and eternal separation from God. Nelson, could you put up the slide, please? But as the biblical scholar Karen Jobes has stated, God has worked the ultimate reversal of expected ends in another seemingly ordinary human event, the birth of a baby in Bethlehem, and years later, the execution of that man on a Roman cross. The ordinary and miraculous intersect in Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ is a pivot point of the great reversal of history where sorrow has been turned into joy. Through the seemingly insignificant events of the birth of a baby and the execution of a man on a Roman cross, God has guaranteed us life even though we face certain death. He has reversed our lot. God is working providentially in 
in the world, sorry, in the completely secular and ungodly course of human events to save those who are his and against all expectation to bring all of history to culmination in Christ. There is no plot, no plan that can thwart God's purposes which stretch from Genesis to Revelation and Esther lies between the two. The great paradox illustrated so well by the story of Esther is that God is omnipotently, that just a word means all-powerfully, present even where God is most conspicuously absent. God is omnipotently present even where God is or seemingly most conspicuously absent. Esther is a wonderful reminder that our God is sovereignly overseeing the welfare of his people even when he seems most absent. As believers, we need to remind ourselves of that, especially when life is tough. God, through Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, has already reversed the fortunes of all followers of Jesus. Once we were children of God's wrath, destined for eternal separation from God. Now we are sons and daughters of God our Father, and Jesus is our elder brother. With myriads of brothers and sisters in Christ, we have eternal life in Christ now to enjoy and a new creation to look forward to where there is no more sin and brokenness, no more addictions or injustices or wars or disasters or diseases or death. There's something to rejoice over and celebrate because of Jesus' rescue of us and our reversal of fortunes through him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the book of Esther, which so powerfully reminds us that you are omnipotently present even where you seem to be most conspicuously absent. We need that reminder, especially when life is hard. We acknowledge that the ordinary and the miraculous intersect in Jesus Christ. We praise you that the cross of Jesus Christ is the pivot point of the great reversal of history where sorrow has been turned to joy. Through the seemingly insignificant events of, the birth, of his birth as a baby and his execution as a man on a Roman cross, you have guaranteed us life even though we face certain death. You have reversed our lot. Thank you. And you continue to work out your purposes in this sin-fractured world to save those who are yours and against all expectation to bring all of history to culmination in Christ. There is no plot, no plan that can thwart your purposes. Your kingdom will come and your will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look forward to that great day when that is fully realised, when Jesus comes again. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Hey.
And now it is uh, time for Q&A. We've got a couple of questions online. Uh, so we're just gonna go through one by one. Um, first question is, what does per or perum mean? So per means lot. Um, that is the casting of lots. Uh, and purum is the plural. <clears throat> so um, uh, it was a bit of a flyover, really, over the book of Esther. But what it refers to is the fact that Haman, at the beginning of the year, cast lot, cast the lot to get the best time to execute his evil plan. So that was the first month of the year, and the evil plan was to be uh, effected on the was it the thirteenth day of the twelfth month. So it was a long way off. So that's what it would refer to. And if you look at Proverbs chapter sixteen, verse twenty-three, I think it's twenty-three or thirty-three. Oh, thirty-three. Sorry. So Proverbs sixteen thirty-three, the very last verse of chapter sixteen. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So, you know, they were, they were big believers in terms of, you know, trying to line everything up for their plans. But ultimately, God overruled what was the evil for good. Okay. I hope that... Um clarifies that a bit um next question is uh how can you tell if god is working in an event or if it's a coincidence (laughs) i think those are the sort of things well as christians do we really believe in coincidence i don't know um i think that's a i think often you can evaluate when you look back on a series of events. I mean, go, my experience going through at the time, I didn't think of, I didn't put it all together and, um, oh, this is an interesting coincidence or that's a coincidence. I mean, it appeared like that at the time. Yeah. But looking back, I think God was very gracious, you know, and how is it that all these things came together because of my not bothering to say, listen, I didn't understand what you said. Could you tell me in English what you meant? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I don't know that that adequately answers the question, <laughs> but um, I think coincidence is often a term we use in our everyday yeah. um, language and experience. But ultimately, God is was in control of everything. So that's right. There is no coincidence. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 that's, and that's the wonderful tension we have in the scriptures, mm. that God is totally sovereign, yep. but we're also humanly totally responsible. <laughs> and it's a mystery how the two work together. <laughs> yeah. Only God can answer that. <laughs> um, okay, I think we've got one more. Uh, last one is... What did God think about his people being legally allowed to kill their enemies? What about the Ten Commandments? That's a, that's a very good question. Um, better, better minds than uh, mine uh, talk about just wars. Um, I think it was Augustine who was uh, talked about just wars. But that's a really 
that's a really interesting question. Mm. Um, but we've seen in the Old Testament, though, that throughout the Old Testament, that the Israelites had to fight yep. to be preserved. So, um, but generally speaking, I think we uh, err on the side of honouring the value of life. Mm. Um, and sometimes they had to take lives in order to protect their own. So it's a horrible situation to be in, I think. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay. Um, I think that's it for today with all the questions. So, Can I just yeah. make one comment? Because it's hard to, sure. to bring it all out in, <laughs> in a sermon. You would have been here all afternoon. Yeah, yeah. But when you actually um, read through the book of Esther, Take to, take a note of the time, uh, the times that are mentioned in there. Like it might mention what year the king was ruling, the month. Take note of those things, and you'll see often there's a an elapse. There's a big elapse of time, mm-hmm. which is flattened out when you're just reading the story. You don't take note of it okay. as you're yeah. reading it through. For example, Haman cast that lot in the first month. And I think it was the third month that he was came unstuck, that he lost his life. But there was still another uh, eight or nine months till the decree was to be executed. Okay? So when you're just reading it through quickly, you don't pick that up unless you think, oh, hang on a minute. Oh, okay. So anyway, there's just something yeah. to bear in mind when you're reading scripture because, you know, often it just reads so quickly. <laughs> Sure. Yep, yep. And it's a it's a condensation. It's it's a, a shortened version mm. of, of events. Okay. Thank you, Andrew, for that reminder. That's a great um, pickup.